This episode is brought to you by the Device and Virtue podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Adam. On Device and Virtue, Chris and I argue about the wrongs and rights Christians face with technology in everyday life. From smartphones to evangelism chatbots. To that selfie stick Adam shouldn't have bought. It's nice. Subscribe at deviceandvirtue.com. Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. Anyone who does not have this law of Christ within him cannot very well understand any other law. But you who have this law of Christ will well understand the purpose of these other laws. Every episode of Revive Thoughts, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they deliver. Today, we are listening to a sermon from Girolamo Savonarola. It was preached in 1498, and I, I might say Savonarola, Savonarola. I might pronounce it. We might. <laughs> we understand we're probably not pronouncing it consistently and or the right way. This could be wrong, but I feel like if I say it fast, it sounds more correct. Savonarola. 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 So Girolamo Savonarola, and I'm not going to say Girolamo again, is a name that the audience might not be familiar with. Uh, I got to be honest with you, since I don't think I've been this conflicted over a guy since we had Soren, we did Soren Kierkegaard of like, what do I think about this guy? He is extremely yeah. difficult to pinpoint. There's a lot of people that love him and a lot of people that hate him and good reasons for both. I could see where everyone's coming from. We'll kind of give you our final thought by thought analysis, but we understand if you come to a different conclusion. I, I don't, this show, sometimes we have people on and we go, there's some cool ideas here. There's some interesting stuff, but you need to decide what you think because Oh, look, it's it's really hard to tell. Uh, but I think you're going to be fascinated by him, if nothing else. 19 years before Martin Luther hammered those theses, and uh, before he said, here I stand, I can st- do no other, this guy stood up to the Roman Catholic Church in Italy, so in their home turf. And he went further than just to say, here I can stand, I can do no other. He, uh, in this sermon you'll see, he'll say, if I'm wrong before God, then God strike me down. And I, on this day, at this time, tell everyone to pray and come and see what happens. He was pretty bold, and uh, he led everyone in the town into a festival to burn all the idols of that city because he saw a city that was extremely idolatrous and needed to be cleansed. Yeah, I kind of love that part, actually. We'll get into it. We'll get into the details of it. But Savonarola, he was born in the year 1452. Again, so we're pre-Reformation here. He originally planned on being a doctor, and he's not the first guy on our show with that career path in mind, I think that was a, I feel like it's either an actor or a doctor. Or a lawyer. Or, or a lawyer, yeah, yes. a lot of lawyers, yeah. Over time, God put him on the path, though, to become a monk or a priest. And he was actually a pretty reluctant preacher. He's one of those persons that didn't like the limelight, didn't want to be in the limelight. But when he was put in the limelight, his preaching was apocalyptic and terrifying. He was he developed this reputation for people expecting him to say things that were controversial and tough, and, and people would gather just to hear what he was going to preach on next because they knew it would be a topic of debate. Be a show. Yeah. Now, there is a lot to his story. We're just kind of skipping through um, because this guy's a lot. Uh, Getting to the important stuff. In 1490, he moved back to Florence. Uh, He had been invited by the Medici family to uh, be the preacher there. And everywhere he went, people were just amazed at how brilliant, what what power he preached. He seemed like a very smart guy. Uh, But very quickly, he became an enemy in Florence of the Medici family. Now, the Medici was pretty much this powerful business oligarchy ruling family that ran the show in Florence. And... 
by Florence, by the time he's done with them, the Medici's are kicked out of power four years later, and Florence kind of becomes this republic, and it's kind of a republic. The idea is a republic, but really, uh, Savonarola is going to be running the show. If you've ever heard of the name Machiavelli, he's famous for writing The Prince, and he had advice. He actually mentions Savonarola, who he saw preach, and he puts him in his book. However, it's important to note, not everyone's sure if the prince was actually meant to be serious. Some have said it might have been satire, kind of the same way of Jonathan Swift wrote satire. So let's keep that in mind. But much of his advice in the in the book is actually not really that good and runs contrary to other things he has said. So when he says he didn't like Savonarola, that could have just been him kind of writing uh, a lie. It's a very complicated situation. But the situation is that Savonarola basically takes over Florence. Yeah, so rich and old, everyone came to hear this new preacher. Savonarola had a vision for Florence to make it a clean and pure city once again. At the time, sodomy, adultery, orgies, all kinds of vices were common throughout the streets of Florence. And he wanted to see these practices done away with. He wanted to, again, see the city become a Christian city. So he preached dramatically about these evils. And this is where Savonarola got into a little bit of trouble, right? He started to predict, in air quotes, I'm doing air quotes here, he started to predict the yeah. future. And some say that he was just listening to dreams of other monks and he genuinely believed them and was acting on them. Others say that he was being shrewd. Others still that his eschatology was maybe not quite on point. Maybe his eschatology was a bit messy. Either way, he started to predict that a ruler would come and take over Florence and destroy the wicked if it didn't change. Now, what's kind of funny, or funny is it's crazy, as a ruler does actually appear. It happens, yeah. An army invades, and a man named Charles V shows up a few years later. He was the Holy Roman Emperor, and Savonarola, who'd been predicting this man was going to come and deal with Florence, they send him out there and say, negotiate a treaty. He's the guy you've always kind of promised. He's like, here's here. However, uh, this is not the guy that he had been predicting at all. Uh, he had predicted this great and righteous Cyrus that, you know, going to come back from the great. This man is going to rule and take over Florence and bring about justice. And that's not at all what Charles V was. Charles V was kind of slow, kind of simple, kind of frail. Um, he, he didn't really do anything without kind of being pushed into it. He wasn't really all that interested in Florence or anything, but you know, the money and glory and he wouldn't live all that long. And he didn't really end up doing any of the things that Savonarola had been promising he was going to do when he got there. Savonarola, if you can't tell, he's a pretty complicated man. Again, he's, he's a controversial man. Uh, and it's so far back in history that it leads to a lot of speculation, too. People look at his lives, look at his life, and try to try to decipher whether they like him or they don't like him. In a lot of ways, that's what Troy and I are, are still doing right now <laughs> on this to show. Figure him yeah. out. <laughs> trying to figure this man out. But he did bring the city into uh, at least an outward display of purity. The whole city became a republic. And the next thing on Salavarala's radar was the, the, the issue of idols in the city. He had guards that would follow him from place to place. In many ways, he was kind of like a ruler of Florence. And when he saw people practicing divination, worshiping idols, practicing magic, this, this upset him, and he decided it needed to go. Every year in the city, there was a carnival. 
And he told the people coming to the carnival that year, bring their idols, bring their sacred things. And people did. And then he burned them all in a giant bonfire. The bonfire of vanities, he called it. People were upset. Some of these were, were gods that, you know, people worshipped. And these people said that their gods would kill Savonarala for this. In this sermon that, that we're about to listen to, there's actually a little insert where he mentions, quote, we destroyed how many gods doing this? And I'm still here. Where are they? The downside to all this is uh, some of those you know, things they were burning were great works of art, ancient manuscripts, uh, things that were you know seen as idols and venerated. Some of them had to go, but on the other hand, he was destroying um, things that maybe were, we would consider today priceless works of art and history, and sure. maybe maybe they shouldn't have been venerated. Of course not, but maybe they weren't all actually things that had to be destroyed. Uh, things kept heating up. Soon he was attacking the Pope. And the thing was, he's not wrong. That a lot of the things he's attacking these people, but these weren't the greatest people. And the Pope was really bad in this era. We were only 20 years out from the indulgent selling Tetzel and the great opulence, wealth, and immorality of Rome was just awful during this time. Uh, but going after the Pope and then having the largest of bonfires of burning just all these things in the city, it was all getting to be a bit too much for the Catholic Church. They, they no longer were turning a blind eye. This guy just seems like an insurrectionist who wanted to break down the church. Uh, so they excommunicated him and they warned him and said, if you don't stop, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. You've got to quit preaching. Savonarola uh, wrote to the Pope shortly afterwards when he learned that the Pope had died. And a witness at the time said that the letter was so moving and compassionate that for a moment, the Pope actually kind of reconsidered how he was treating Savonarola. Uh, but then after thinking about it a little bit more, he decided that, no, actually, in fact, Savonarola, how dare he talk to me this way? I'm the Pope. And he said, I'm going to destroy Savonarola as soon as I could. Yeah, the Pope had no power over Salavarella and at the way he ran his city there. However, people were getting a bit tired of his prophecies and, and his kind of show, so they decided to, to set up this test, this trial by fire, if you will, quite a literal trial by fire, a fantastic mythological trial where two people representing two different sides would go through a literal fire and God would preserve one through a miracle and the other one would be known as as the wrong side <laughs> I suppose and it sounds ridiculous to us we saw something similar there in the crusades this trial by fire so this was a thing that happened not very often but it was something that happened in and, and there was legal structure to do that like you can take this to, to the supreme court or you can enter it into a trial by fire type of thing <laughs> well he had this all set up to go this trial this competition uh, competition's not the right word for it i guess you could say on but, one side yeah and on the other side and people might die so that's what it sounded like <laughs> but it was all set to go for this specific day but the 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 opposition the opposing side of this trial um, had a lot of requests and, and was arguing about how the trial needed to be set up and operated. And this went on for hours throughout the day before they could agree on a way to do this this trial. And by that time, it had started raining. And you can't have a trial by fire in the rain because the yep. rain puts out the fire. And so the whole thing was just kind of shelved for that day. And the people hated it. The people <laughs> wanted to see a miracle happen, and they didn't see a miracle happen uh, and they were enraged and, and turned into a, a mob situation there. They went into the church and dragged Savonarala out of his church. Within a month, he would be executed. And during that time, he both recanted and not recanted. He took back his statements and it kind of went back and forth for a little bit. The day after he died, apparently, the people of Florence threw a gigantic party and committed all of the worst sins in celebration. So 
Not a long-lasting reform. Not a long-lasting, yeah, uh, revival there in the city. Um, I think if you're listening to this, you're going, what on earth do I make of Savonarola? Uh, and I mean that seriously. There's, He's just one of these guys I'm like, well, I get to the end of it, I go, what am I supposed to do with him? So I, I did a lot of research trying to figure it out. There are aspects of him that seem so cool, right? He's burning the idols. He's taking over. He's, he's fixing what is, we all know, a really bad time to be in the Catholic Church. And he's going after the leadership. And he's trying to get the Pope ousted for decadence. Um, some people look at him and say, like, he's a pre-reformer. He's like Luther. And they try to figure out like how we can connect them to those guys. Um, and and to be honest, Luther kind of saw himself that way. But let's look at just a few things. For starters, the prophecies. I think he thought that they were real. And you got to remember, this is before the Reformation, before our good systematic theologies and some of those things that we have today. I think he genuinely thought, you know, they didn't have an idea of starting a new church and stuff like that that would come 20, 30, 40, 50 years later. So his training and experiences told him that God could speak in this way. And so he believed that was what was happening. 20 years before Savonarola was born, a young girl named Joan of Arc uh, believed she was told by God to save France, and then she did. This is what they believed God did during those days. I, I give him the benefit of the doubt. I don't think he was this shrewd politician as some people kind of put him down as. I think he genuinely thought he was hearing from God on these things. Yeah, the, and, and the, the Reformation that would come in the following years seemed to hold him in, in relatively high regard. Martin Luther seemed to think very highly of him. Yes, his theology would not be as good as what would come in the following years, but there are a lot of quotes where he's attributing all of his work to what God did on the cross there and, and hanging it all on God and pointing it all back to Christ. The book that he published two months before his death is called The Triumph of the Cross, was actually, it seems very influential in the Reformation and focused quite a bit on the inerrancy of God's word. Like a lot of early reformers, he seemed to grow as time went on, you know, as his ministry progressed. Do you think about how your iPhone affects your daily life as a Christian? I'm Adam. And I'm Chris. And this episode is brought to you by the Device and Virtue podcast, where we argue about the wrongs and rights of technology and faith in everyday life, from DNA tests to TikTok videos. Give us a listen, and this fall, check out our new online seminary course. It's called Theology of Technology, Church and Culture in the Age of Zoom. Find out more at deviceandvirtue.com. He has since been tied to nearly everyone. Uh, there were times, actually, when the Catholics tried to claim him, maybe as a saint martyr kind of person. It was interesting, too. We didn't mention this. I forgot to put this in the notes. But they actually, the Catholics, right after they had him executed, they sent a team down to read his writings. And basically, this is why he's a heretic. And the conclusion was, like, actually, from his doctrine, we can't really call him a heretic. He had problems, and he wasn't good in the city situation. Uh, but as a actual doctrine, the Catholic Church couldn't catch him on heresy. That was important to know. Uh, reformers claimed him as an early reformer. Uh, we're, I mean, he's had all kinds of people claim him. I saw one group, the Christians for Democrats, claimed him as a social justice champion. So, you know, literally every group has tried to claim him. And also everyone has called him an enemy. These right, same people. Every group has claimed him every group 
is the worst guy for this this and that a reason and so every so he's really been i've never seen a guy just both back and forth by everybody so much i think the best approach is just to appreciate him as a unique guy um a man who tried to set up a perfect christian city kind of like calvin and zwingli would end up doing attempting to do later but he was not able to do so some of his ideas were good he seemed to get better with time um he tried to do a lot of good remembering that he was living in the catholic era before there was any of these other ideas to come to him and he was by himself doing most of it and there are other ideas that just weren't good and that i think he got in trouble for them for maybe the right reasons here we're hearing him get ready to do the last bonfire of vanities he's been excommunicated he'll mention that in the sermon quite a few times how he doesn't like his excommunication um but he told people forget about this forget about anything just press on to god let's let's get these idols and continue what we're doing here in this city Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Psalm 114, verses 1 and 2. We are on the battlefield to fight against the lukewarm today, those who go about sowing evil to the ruin and destruction of souls. I tell you that God is greatly enraged against the lukewarm. I speak that he is against the wicked. This excommunication, being contrary to love, which is the true aim of every law, is not valid. And so, anyone who stubbornly holds to it is against love and also against Christ. So actually, those who hold the excommunication are the actual heretics. But let us come to what I want to discuss with you this morning. There are many who would rather go to the leaves and branches than than to the root at the matter. When you want to understand the laws clearly, look at the root and reason for which they are made. You lawyers have not made the laws, rather they have proceeded directly from the theologians. And every time that the law does not accord with reason or with the law of the grace of Christ, especially in those things which concern the soul, it has no credence or precedence. And every time that reason does not accord with it, it does not come from the root of the tree, but is a dried up branch. But do you know who is deceiving you? They are the lukewarm, especially those who appear to be just so morally upright. These flock are deceived by them, and they believe that if one wears a robe, he must be learned and he must be a saint. The outward robe does not make you learned and does not make you saintly. Think about those who play music. Although he might not strike the notes exactly right, to anyone who's not in the know or was not a musician, he would seem to play well. But the studied and great musicians know that he plays the instrument the wrong way. For this reason, let me tell you that, he, they, that the learned know nothing. Anyone who wants to know needs to study both in books and by living a good life. Not to go visiting all day long with the flock, persuading them not to attend church. Now against the lukewarm, I want to explain the psalm we have chosen this morning. Come forward, you lukewarm, for I am taking you by the arm this morning whether you are a priest or a friar or whatever you are. I speak particularly of those who seem to be so morally upright that they stand there like sacred images. I want to show you that you have nothing good within, but that you are merely a painted image. I will show it to you through this psalm that speaks of Israel leaving Egypt, but have no doubt that we too want to cross the Red Sea, and Pharaoh will not be able to do anything to us. 
Now let me make a brief pause. We need to arrange it so that all those who are engaged in studying theology come to actually understand the sermon, and that they listen for a little while to the law of Christ. It is a shame that they stretch the laws each as he wants. According to the theologians, a law is nothing other than a command of reason created by a prince for the preservation of the common good. It says a command of reason because the law is made in order to live uprightly according to reason. So God, prince of the universe, makes his laws for the welfare of his creatures. For instance, the way the stone has to go down when thrown is given to it by natural law. The fires going up is given to it by natural law. Man also has his own law of natural light given to him by God. But because of the reluctance of the flesh, he needs another law. That is the law of grace. And this is the law of Christ. And the more it takes hold of a man, the more it draws him to God. It becomes almost a second natural law, inclined toward living uprightly and impelled toward eternal things. Especially when perfect and moral men are completely absorbed in that grace. When this law is perfected in them as it is in the blessed, they cannot turn back, because they are fixed on their goal. Like the stone which by law must come down, even if you were to throw it up a hundred times, this law of Christ and his grace, he wrote it first in the hearts of the apostles and then through them the hearts of others. Consider what kind of law this is which Christ introduced all over the world, and yet he never wrote a book of laws by his own hand. Anyone who does not have this law of Christ within him cannot very well understand any other law. But you who have this law of Christ will well understand the purpose of these other laws. So I will preach this morning that you are the epistle of Christ, and through our ministry his law is written. You do not have it written in any book, but in your hearts. There is a very great difference between having it written in the heart and having it written in books. It is as great as that between grace and ink, between the pen and the Holy Spirit, between man and God, between paper and the heart. You have this law of Christ written in your hearts. It is not their books or words that move you, but the law of Christ within you that gives movement to your faith. Do you want to see if the desire which is in your hearts comes from the law of Christ? Look at your fruit. If you want to identify an olive tree, you look at the fruit. If you want to identify an apple tree, you look at the fruit. This law produces the same fruit it produced at the time of the apostles in the hearts of those who are converted. The apostles had this desire to live uprightly, do good works, have a great love for Christ, and even love martyrdom. You have seen and felt that this is the work of Christ, just as real as his other works. I have shown you the similarities many times, and I could show you many more if I wanted to run through the Holy Scriptures. Do you want to see one of them now? Look at those who believed in Christ. You will find that the scribes and the Pharisees, who were the learned and religious men at the time, did not believe in him. Rather, they contradicted him and always have contradicted him. But the people, the common folk, were the ones who believed in Christ. Today, the opposition comes from the priests to the work, while the populace and the common folk believe in it. And so it was similar in Christ's day. Furthermore, tell me, did any leaders of the priests believe in Christ? Then consider if any leaders of the priests today believe in him. Of Christ they said that he deceived the people. They say the same today of this work we are doing. Moreover, an edict was then issued that anyone who believed in Christ should be excommunicated, 
that is, kicked out of the temple. Does it not seem to you that this is still done today against the work we do? The priests feared that for believing in Christ, the Romans would remove their rulership from their hands. Likewise today, our priests fear that for coming to hear this sermon, they might lose their office of power. Does this not seem to you to be the same old problem? Further, when the scribes and Pharisees plotted to kill Christ, they did not want to enter Pilate's palace. They were fearful, since it was Passover, of being contaminated. But they thought nothing of the death of Christ or of having him crucified. Hear how careful was the conscience of the Pharisees. Similar today, they have scruples about excommunication, and on the other hand, they keep a concubine and a boy. And so you see that this work of ours is more similar to that of Christ than theirs. If you have eyes, you must know that this is the work of Christ. For this is the work of God, and since you have the law of Christ written in your hearts, you know this with us and can sing Alleluia, Alleluia. Let the first Alleluia be for the joy you have here and now, so that you might remain ever joyful during these tribulations. The second will be for the joy we will have then in the other life. This will do for the title of the psalm. Now let us turn to the psalm itself. The people of Israel, when they were in Egypt, lived among the Egyptians. So much so that they became half Egyptian in speech, in customs, and in almost everything. And yet God decided to free them. It so happened at that time that the lukewarm were mixed with the good, and the good could no longer be distinguished from the bad. They were all becoming one big lump of dough. Is it not so today? I remember that when I was in the world I had this thought, and I used to say, what kind of life is this? The ranks of the good could not be distinguished from those of the bad. For this reason we were in the deepest darkness, and yet God has at this time sent light to the world and has taken us out of Egypt. Where our psalm says, the exit of Israel from Egypt, that is, we have come out from the darkness of Egypt. You, house of Jacob, when Israel went out from Egypt, the house of Jacob from a barbaric people, Jacob, which is interpreted uprooter, that is, you who have uprooted vices and sins have come out from the hands of barbaric people. Barbaric is applied to people without law. See today the, pri- the priests and religious are unrestrained and without law. God has freed you from their hands. Give thanks to God for this. Judah became his sanctuary. Judea means those who confess. This means the confessions you have made by which you have been sanctified in the Lord has made you safe. We have already been at war for seven years and we have always been conquered. Where has this power come? We have not had money or soldiers, but enemies nearly everywhere. For our weapons have been our prayers, faith, and patience. Verse 3. The sea has seen and fled, and Jordan has turned back. Jordan is interpreted as river of judgment, and your judgment has turned back. But that of the wicked has not turned back. Verse 4. The mountains, which signifies perfect men or preachers or leaders, have exalted like rams. That is, like guardians of the flock. The mountains are high places upon which the sun shines before it reaches other places. Have no doubt, my children, that the mountains were the first ones illuminated by the Son of Justice, that is, Christ Jesus. And so they have exalted like rams, that is, they were like bellwethers and guides of the lambs. And from the mountains the sun has then come upon the hills. You are the hills, who have rejoiced and have exalted like lambs. You remain joyful in tribulation, and you desire martyrdom, because the Son of Justice has touched you. 
Verse 5, But you see what has happened to you that you have fled. The sea could be sexual immorality, the devil, and the wicked. Come here, immorality, where have you fled? I speak to those who have become good, who used to be afire with sexual temptation every hour of the day. Where have you fled, devil, you who no longer overpowered these good ones with temptation? Where have you hidden yourselves, you wicked ones? That is, where is the sword and your persecutions, which the good no longer fear? Come here, sinner. What is it that has made you turn back? What has been promised to you? Not gold, not silver, but rather tribulations and suffering. So you have left your pleasures to come and suffer evil. It has been the grace of God which has made you turn back. And now in the next verse, we see that the good have rejoiced. By the face of the Lord, the earth has been moved. Oh, my Lord, what is your face? Your face is your son. Christ is your face. Oh, holy face. Oh, beautiful face. Oh, sweet face. Oh, face full of all graciousness. You, my Lord, with your face have moved the whole earth. The earth of the good has been moved to goodness. The earth of the wicked has been moved to wickedness. This Lord has been placed on this cross for the salvation of the good and the ruin of the wicked. Back to verse 7, Jacob again means uprooter. The earth then will be moved by the face of Jacob. Have no doubt that we will uproot sins in every way with the grace of the Lord, because he is the one who converts every sinner. Verse 8 says, This is the Lord who converts stone into pools of water. The stone is the hard heart. O my Lord, how many hearts of stone have you converted into pools of water? You have converted my heart into a pool of tears. In verse 8, you have converted high cliffs into fountains. The high cliff is the proud mind. You have converted it into a fountain of tears. You have subjugated it to humility. And this has been through your grace, not through the merit of men. And so, Lord, let praise be given to you, not to us. Verse 9, give glory not to us, Lord, but to your name. May you be glorified. May you be blessed a thousand times. Verse 10, may you be praised, Lord, for your mercy, because you have shown mercy to the good and have given them your light. And may you also be praised for your truth, because you have always wanted and do want to attend to your promises to them. O Lord, come quickly to fulfill your promises to your elect. For the next verse says, so that the nations and the wicked might not say, where is their God? And so that they might not insult you, as they have done up until now. Lord, we pray that you may be with us and that we may be keep your commandments. This is your law which we want to have written in our hearts, something the lukewarm do not have. But do you want to see whether it is true? Wait and I will show you what they are made of. Whoever has this law is blessed. This is the law of laws. Hold fast to this law so that God, having taken you out of Egypt, will help you and set you straight. Go straight to God and hold fast to this law and have no fear of excommunication. But, the lukewarm say, we too have this law. We do penance and many good works. You lukewarm, I remind you of one thing. Take care that you do not become martyrs for the devil. I tell you, you lukewarm, that although you may be able to perform good exterior works, if you do not have love and have this law of Christ in your heart, you accomplish nothing and you will end up in the house of the devil. But, you will say, 
How do you know that I do not have this law? I will show you clearly that you do not have it. Come along this way, you lukewarm, for I have taken you by the arm this morning. I know that you study philosophy and that you hold it dearer in your heart to be called a philosopher than a Christian. When you go to a lukewarm and tell him that he is a good philosopher, he rejoices more and holds it dearer than if you were to tell him that he is a good Christian. Now, since you hold it so dear to be called a philosopher, I want to demonstrate to you by means of your philosophy that you do not have the law of Christ in your heart. Aristotle says in the second book of De Cucello et Mundo that if one opposite exists, it immediately follows from this that the other must also exist. And so if it is possible that the earth is cold and dry, it shows that air is hot and humid by reason of contrariety. And if it is posited that fire is hot and dry, it follows from this that there must be a contrary entity which is cold and humid, and this is water. So if you suggest one contrary, it follows immediately from this that there must be an opposite. But if you were to say, I see the fire here and I see the water, how do I know that they are two opposites? How do I come to recognize this? The method for recognizing them is this. Put them together, one right next to the other, and you will immediately see a battle, one fighting against the other. But note that the substances of things are not contrarieties. Water and fire, insofar as they are substances, are not themselves fighting. But the forces within them are fighting against each other. You see there is a dog which appears to be a wolf. But put it next to a wolf and you will see that they are contraries and that they will bite each other. This is due to the contrary forces within them. Consider also, you have poisonous food, but you do not know that there is a venomous power hidden inside it. Eat it, and you will see that it is contrary to the life with which you have within you. If then, when one contrary exists in the world, it follows that there is another contrary, and that one contrary is recognized in its battle against the other. Since Christ and his law are in the world, there is also his contrary, which is the devil and his law. The law of Christ is his grace, and as soon as this law begins to operate in the world, out jumps its contrary, which is the devil. At the time of the apostles who carried out the law of Christ, his contrary immediately leapt into action, and the devil came into the world to make a great contradiction against him. And that is how it became known that the scribes and the Pharisees were members of the devil, for they contradicted Christ. They did not have the grace of Christ, but instead lived in its contrary. At the time of the martyrs, because they had this law of Christ in their hearts and taught it to others, God's contrary, the devil, came out. And he stirred up the tyrants to wage war against God's people. At the time of the heretics, they and their heresies were the contrary of this law. And the more the grace of Christ grew in the world, and the more his law grew in the hearts of the faithful, the greater was the contradiction and fight against him. For when you set one contrary next to another, the second leaps up to attack it. So you will always see, wherever the grace of Christ is, that evil men contradict it. This is your own philosopher's law I am using here. So if you lukewarm ones, say then that you have the grace of Christ in his law, where is the contradiction made against you? You say that you yourselves to prayer and to good works, and yet we see that the wicked, who should be your contraries and make war against you, tip their hats to you and accord you every honor. This means that the law which you have within you is not contrary to theirs, and so you do not have the law and the grace of Christ as you say. 
Do you want to see that there is nothing of the grace of Christ within these lukewarm ones and evil priests? See how fearful they are to lose their offices through the contradiction from the wicked. Friar, there are also good religious people who contradict you. I tell you that they are not good. Consider that they have friendship with and are at one with those who are manifestly evil, and they get along with those who, as is evident from their works, do not have the grace of Christ. Therefore, some of you are like them. For if in your opinion these are not evil priests, you are in accord with them and have an understanding with those who are manifestly wicked. And so you are exactly the same sort as they are, and are not their contrary. Because one contrary cannot be next to the other without a fight. You see, you lukewarm, how I have caught you this morning. You cannot escape your own philosophy. Tell me, what does it mean that you want to absolve the bankers and those who take ten offices for themselves, and yet you do not want to absolve those who want to do good here today? You think, that wretched flock because they come to this sermon in order to learn to live like a Christian. But you do not want to absolve the church. Yet you are always ready to absolve the wicked. This then is perfectly clear, that you are as wicked as the wicked themselves. You help them. You favor them. Therefore, they are not your contrary, because one contrary has no peace alongside the other. And so, since the wicked do not have the grace of Christ, you being like them do not have it either. You are earthly men, and your God is on earth, but our God is in heaven. Next verse. Our Lord is he who is in heaven, and he has made the sun shine upon the mountains and the hills and has enlightened the good with his truth, and we will overcome it. We are your contrary, and we want to be so as long as you are earthly men. The apostles overcame their contraries because God was with them, and since God is with us, we have no fear of your contradictions. Now you understand what the lukewarm are made of, and that they do not have the grace and the law of Christ within them. But stay a bit to understand even better about their condition. O oh, friar, a great war will be waged against you for saying these things. Was not a great war waged against our Lord until they finally crucified him? I fear nothing. Make war as much as you want. It is enough for me that the Lord is with me. But you do not believe that the Lord is with us. I know that the Lord is with me. I fear nothing. The next verse. Our God is in heaven and also with us. He does what he wants, and he can and will do what pleases him. He wants this work to go forward and achieve its end, and he will make it happen. But these evil ones have idols for their gods. Tell me, have you ever heard of a war being waged against idols? Certainly not. They have been strongly preached against, yes, but against Christ and his apostles and the martyrs the greatest war and persecution was waged continually. Nevertheless, their teaching still stands its ground, while the idols have all vanished in smoke. Consider, it has been seven years now that we have had so much warring against the idols of this city. So many preachers have been against us, and so many idols should be. And yet we are still here, while ashes are left of the idols that have vanished in smoke. These idols are worthless. The next verse says, They put their trust in gold and in silver. That is, they put their trust in human wisdom and in knowing how to speak well. And they believe that with their ornamented speech they can shade the truth. For they, with their works, put their trust in human things. But our work belongs to him who is in heaven, and in him is all our refuge. 
We read further in this psalm, these lukewarm ones have a mouth and do not speak, but they howl and bark, murmur and speak ill. They flatter the great lords and do not tell them the truth. But you do not know how to pray, as the psalm says here, and you do not know how to speak. Do you want to see that they do not know how to speak? How the flock confuse them and they do not know what to say? So they become enraged and begin to curse and speak evilly. At the very least, O lukewarm ones, at least open your eyes and see how blind your idols are. This verse says, They have eyes and they do not see. The eyes of their intellect have the spectacles and the veil of avarice, and they say, I do not want to lose my position. I say nothing of the eyes of lust. It is no wonder, then, that you do not see. At least if you do not see, believe one who gives you good counsel, since you are so blind. But they don't want to believe, and they don't want to hear. The next verse tells us that they have ears, and they do not want to hear the sermons, and they do not want those who grow from them to read them or hear them. Come here, you lukewarm. For what reason are you so opposed to God? You speak against these sermons, and yet you do not listen to them. So you contradict what you do not know. Oh, it has been reported to me what you say. Perhaps what has been reported to you is false. St. Jerome and St. Augustine and the other holy doctors of the church did not behave the way you do. They wanted to see all the books of the heretics, and then they contradicted them and knew exactly what it was they contradicted. At least, O oh, lukewarm, if you do not hear, at least you might sense the odor of this fame of living uprightly, which, is, as you see, has spread all over, but you do not smell this good odor. The next verse says, They have noses, but they do not smell. Yet those who are far off smell this odor. I received letters only yesterday from one who lives in a city of Italy, who has seen two previous sermons and says that anyone who does not believe in this work is scarcely a Christian. And even from Germany we have letters from those who believe in what we preach. You should at least smell the odor of good fame of the work of Christ spreading out. But for those who are evil, good things put out a bad odor. As Second Corinthians says, For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the, one who are, to the one we are an aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life. The wicked hate living uprightly. But even if you cannot smell the odor of our good works, can you at least do your own good works? And they have hands and they do not feel. They can do no good deeds. They work only for external works and ceremonies. These count for nothing since they are without changes of heart. All of you know the joy of clasping hands with a friend. You feel that warmth and it gives you comfort. These people feel no warmth from good deeds because they are frigid, full of hatred, envy, and pride. Do you also know, you lukewarm, why you have no gusto in your actions? Because your affections have become disgusting. It continues, they have feet and they do not walk. The feet are those earthly affections. Your affections are turned entirely toward the earth. I have told you that you are idols. Idols are fixed with nails to the earth. Likewise, you are nailed and fixed to earthly things, and this is the cause of why you are hindered from doing good. Now then, lukewarm, call on God to free you from these hindrances, but they will not do it. It continues, they have mouths and they do not speak. They make no prayers to God. Even worse, being evil themselves, they also make evil anyone who meets with them. Hear what the Holy Spirit says through the psalm. It says they become like them, those who do what they would do and who confide in them. So do not bother with these men. Do not go to confess to them, because you will become lukewarm like them.
You who have a lukewarm priest at home, you will become lukewarm like him. Look at those women who go to confession with the lukewarm. They do nothing but speak ill of others. They are full of hatred and envy, and they are lukewarm like them. Keep company with the good, and put your trust in Christ who is with us. Let me take a pause, and we will continue with the psalm. Does it not seem to you that these things are true? It does to me. Oh, friar, we had to miss your sermon. Do you know why? Because only a few live according to Christ. Fewer than you would think. And if many miss them now, many now many more will be missing them in the future. Few of us are left from this sifting of Luke 23, and I fear that yet another sifting will be needed. Our Lord, speaking certain words, once made such a sifting, and few remained with him. This happened when he said, I am the living bread. My flesh is truly food. My blood is truly drink. I can tell you that few remain with him after this sifting. All the disciples left, except for the twelve. And all those who left, hear what they were saying. This speech is hard to say that we are to eat the flesh and drink the blood of a man. And they left. The Savior turned to the twelve and said, Do you also want to leave? And St. Peter replied, Lord, you have the words of eternal life. To whom do you want us to go? We want to stay with you. So you see that at times there are such rigorous siftings that few remain afterward. Oh, friar, if all the world were to contradict you, what would you do? I will remain steadfast, not because of me, but because of God. Now you know I have shown you that these lukewarm know nothing. Are you still so insane as to assert that if a sentence is unjust, I have to follow it? If a thing is unjust, then it is contrary to justice. So then we have to follow what is contrary to justice. First, if justice is Christ, then it is contrary to Christ. Must I then follow what is contrary to Christ? Second, if it is contrary to Christ, then it comes from his adversaries, and his adversaries are the devils and their members. Will I then follow the law of the devil and his members? You are insane if you believe that I have to follow a law made by devils. I have not sinned in not observing the excommunication. The writer of the excommunication is one who executes unjust excommunications. I could present a hundred arguments to demonstrate to you that it does not have to be either followed or feared. The law does not forbid us from showing love. For instance, if you had been forbidden under pain of automatic excommunication to give food to someone starving, you would be obligated not to follow such a law. Do you think that the laws are made in order to do evil? If so, a wicked pope could end the whole church if he wanted to, and his unjust decisions would be held valid according to you. But come here, you priests who fear to take part with the, those excommunicated. What about the decree of Pope Martin, which states that taking part with someone excommunicated, if he has not been publicly denounced by name, does not incur any blowback? Excommunications today are cheap commodities. For four dollars, anyone can have anyone he likes excommunicated. They are given to anybody who wants them. I tell the truth. I do not believe such excommunications carry any weight with God. They are handed out like candy these days. The church should not so quickly move to excommunication on the slightest pretext. You can see for yourself how much something thrown around so carelessly is worth. But you will remain stubborn, and I know you will not believe what I have told you. But if this had happened under the previous leadership, you would say that it had no validity and would welcome everyone back as you did then. Now then, let us leave behind the matter of excommunication. So what are we to do now? Listen, for I will tell you. O oh, you religious, O oh, Rome, O oh, Italy, 
I call on the whole world, come forward. What I tell you either is from God or it is not. If it is from God, you cannot attack it. And if you do attack it, you will lose to your own great harm. If it is not from God, it will soon fail by itself. Why so much fighting against it then? It will be a hard thing for you to kick against the goad. O Rome, I warn you. O naysayers and bishops of Rome, I warn you that if this is from God, for the very reason that it is from God, you must not spoil it. O wicked citizens, O you lukewarm, you will collapse under this weight. When you think you have stifled it, it will surge up again livelier than ever. And the wall which we are building, which you seek to tear down, will fall down upon you. O Lord, I wish you would hurry. I can do no more than this. And so that he may hurry all the more, I want you, dearly beloved all, to make speeches on the day of carnival. Let us all jointly pray fervently to God and take Mass together. I will take the sacrament in hand, and I want everyone then to pray fervently. And pray that if this matter is from me, and I am deceiving you, Christ may send a fire from heaven upon me to swallow me then and there into hell. But if it is from God, that he may hurry quickly, and so that you may be very clear on this point, have prayers said in all your monasteries, and tell even the lukewarm to come and pray. Tell them to pray on that morning, that God may rescue you, and that if I am deceiving you, may a fire fall and kill me. Write it everywhere, dispatch messengers to Rome and everywhere, and have prayers said on that day, that if this is not from God, evil may befall me as I have said it would. But if it is from God, pray that the Lord may hasten and show a sign that it is his work. I do not mean right now, because it is not yet time. O oh, friar, you put yourself in great danger. No, I do not put myself in danger. You will see how I will rejoice with my Lord. Believe that I am not crazy. I know what I am doing, and I would not set myself up as a target if I did not know that God is with me. I will be strong. Have everyone pray fervently. I will have that verse sung, that is from verse, from Psalm 73, 9. Show your power now, Lord, and come to free us. And let everyone sing that verse and pray fervently to God to free you. On that day I will give communion to my brethren. Come all then, and let us pray fervently to God that he may unravel this matter and unmistakably set you free. Since reasoning is worth almost nothing against so much malice in the wicked, we will be there, as I have told you, with the sacrament in hand. Challenge one of the lukewarm that he also, with the sacrament in hand, in the presence of the people, should make this experiment and have everyone pray that if the matter is false, God may kill him in the sight of the people. You will see how he will be paralyzed with fear and shake all over. Now then, we want to wage a great war against the devil at this time, and remove the fleshly delights of the devil and introduce the spiritual delights of God. But the wicked will give themselves to worldly delights. Now on that day, let everyone pray that God may reveal if this is false and that if it is his truth, for the very, very reason that it is. He may hurry and come straight away to free us. But you, friar, what will you do on that day? The next verse in our psalm says, The Lord aids those who hope in him. I will hope in my God, and he will be my protector. Have no doubt that God is with us. After that, our psalm says, Those who fear in the Lord and hope in him, the Lord always aids. The Lord has remembered us and has blessed us. He has blessed the house of Israel. Fear nothing, for it is the Lord who has given his blessing to both the great and the small. He has blessed you and has also blessed your children. This soul has to be set above all the heavens. 
He has given the earth to the children of men, that is, earthly things to earthly men. Those who are dead in sin will not praise you, Lord, because they are already destined for hell. But we who live, that is, we who have spiritual life and the life of your grace, will praise you eternally and will never cease to give praise to your majesty, who, not for our merits, but because of his benevolence, has given to us grace and has redeemed us with the most precious blood of his Son. May you be praised and blessed by us, Lord our God, and your sweetest Son, Christ Jesus, our Redeemer. Amen. He does this great bit in the middle where he destroys philosophers and priests by saying, um, if you are of God, why does the world love you so much? And this is not maybe a directly scriptural statement, but I do think there's some application to it. Uh, when you look at your life, how's the world looking at you? Is it cheering alongside of you? Does anyone reject you for your faith? Have you ever had kind of any persecution or anyone had any comments for you? Does everyone seem fine with you? Because if you have no one pushing back on you, it might be because they don't see you as an enemy, that the world system looks at you and sees you as one of their own. I think that was one of the better points Savonarola made. Um, and the other one, I mean, just imagining this carnival with this all these idols burning at a giant bonfire. It's one of those moments that reminds you of Boniface chopping down the tree and just these moments in church history where men stood up and looked at these things, almost like an Old Testament guy with Elisha yeah. and stuff like that, where they just go, this is not how we worship the God of the Bible. Savonarola is a complicated man, but I think he brings up some good questions. What are the idols in our life that we should be tossing into that bonfire? Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revive Thoughts. Today's episode was narrated by Jonathan Theody. Theody's been a great narrator on the show. He, he typically does like a medieval era. Yeah. I like to use him for these kind of medieval. He's yeah. done John Wycliffe. He does. He just has a very Johann deep Taller, voice. Yeah. George Matheson. I like to. George Matheson's not medieval, but I just like to use him for these <laughs> kind of deeper sermons. And I think he does a great job. And so when I saw this guy, this guy imagining him burning these idols and whipping up a whole city, I was like, "That's a Theody sermon." Let's get let's get Theody on it. Yeah. If you enjoyed this episode of Revive Thoughts, we encourage you to leave us a five-star review for the research and things that we do to try to bring you uh, the best show and the best shows here with Revive Studios. And we also encourage you to check out our website, read some of the sermons, and look through some of the other episodes that we have. Uh, we hope you have enjoyed this episode. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts. This episode is brought to you by the Device and Virtue podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Adam. On Device and Virtue, Chris and I argue about the wrongs and rights Christians face with technology in everyday life. From smartphones to evangelism chatbots. To that selfie stick Adam shouldn't have bought. It's nice. Subscribe at deviceandvirtue.com.